The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 70.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode. And I hope you had as much fun as we did hearing from Greg Orlando. He definitely has a quirky perspective all his own, and he showed us so many cool things. Quick plug, not trying to push it too hard, but he brought a visual element to this where he showed off this Gen 13 Fairchild prototype figure that Wizard received at one point and he became the owner of in comparison to like the ones that were actually released and so we left the audio in but if you want to see what that was all about and what we were reacting to it's only on the video version on Patreon but also after that we had like a 20 minute discussion with him he showed off some posters and a bunch of other stuff that he has and so Greg is just a super fun guy he's actually sending us some items for the archives as well so you can look for that in a future haul video and of course we didn't have time to get into everything on that main episode and one of the things that I wanted to read but I just felt like we had to get past it uh, was in the Willie Lumpkin's mailbag segment there was a very funny letter from Jim McLaughlin we talked about his uh, sense of comedy and Greg shared his admiration for him here so I wanted to read one more letter from issue 70 it says here Jim I was recently at a comic show and heard people talk about a 12 inch Ben that has brown boots I talked to a guy at one of the boots and he said that it was just a myth is it true or is it a myth Josh Steedwick Brenham Texas. Okay, so a 12-inch Ben. You hear that and you're like, okay, what does that mean? Obviously, it's like a Ben Kenobi from Star Wars. That's what I'm assuming anyway, that it had some sort of brown boots. But uh, Jim decided to take that in a different direction. Ah, good old 12-inch Ben. No one knows for sure if he ever really existed. Some think he did. Some even claim to have seen him. But others say he's just a myth. Those who believe say that he has a joy of a man, only a foot tall, even in his trademark brown boots. They say that he wandered the comic shows of America always with a smile on his face and a kind word for everyone. People love to see him, but one day, he simply disappeared. Some say that he just wandered off into the sunset one Sunday at 6pm at the end of yet another show. Another legend has it that he fell into a quarter box at a show one day and was crushed to death between two near-complete runs of Rom Space Night. His tiny body never to be recovered. All we know for sure is that 12-inch Ben is no where to be found today. Was he real? Or maybe just a myth? A collective longing on the part of showgoers everywhere for a pure soul, a friendly face, the world may never know. <laughs> So you just gotta love Jim McLaughlin messing with people. It's like, you were not specific. That could have been a reference to anything. Let's get goofy. Also, you know, we know that Keep Squeezing Them Monkeys Lad becomes this running joke, becomes a character. I'm kind of sad we never got 12-inch Ben. That 12-inch Ben didn't become a running gag in Wizard. Nobody stayed for that last letter. Nobody wrote in responses telling him how funny he was. Oh, it's a shame. But, you know, a lot of people were sending in mail to Wizard to win some free prizes so let's get into caps kooky contests (laughs) 
Our first contest here, I feel, has to be inspired by Colleen Duran's travel log about that trip to Japan that Jeff Smith was on, because it says, Cartoon Books presents the Bone Treasures Contest. Quick, can you name two things everybody would love to have more of? Well, if you said treasure and Jeff Smith's bone, then you answered correctly. And with this super-duper contest, you have the opportunity to win both. All you have to do is draw what you imagine a female version of bone looks like. What could be more fun? Entries should be no larger than 11 by 17, but feel free to use any medium you like. Crayons, pencils, finger paints, jello. It's your decision. Be creative. Be original. Be wacky. The grand prize. One lucky winner gets this ultimate bone prize package. A red dragon statue. Bone number one. Bone premiere edition. Bone 13 and a half gold edition. Bone flip book. Thorn. Tales from the Lantern. Bone source book. San Diego edition. Bone PVC. Limited edition bone wall art. Wizard bone 13 half. Ace and wizard bone half. Wowie. Second prize, another lucky reader wins limited edition bone wall art and four wonderfully fun bone posters. And then you have the actual uh, red dragon statue here with a word balloon that says, I hope my new home is nice. This month's contest is sponsored by Cartoon Books, a bunch of funny characters. All right, so they give us here legal bonage. <laughs> contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Cartoon Books, and, you know, them bone guys are just so damn cute and fill us with so much love we can't find it within ourselves to cap on anything here sorry okay well that's that's it <laughs> is that supposed to be some like lingo of the time that i'm just not remembering gonna cap me you a know, bust a cap i don't know that's weird okay next one here no cash equivalent or substitute prizes will be offered. Prizes are awarded in the names of the contest winners and are not transferable. Sorry, still feeling too much loving to rag on anything. <laughs> so yeah, so they're basically just saying, Bone is so cute, they're not going to be snippy about it. Okay, on to the next contest. This is about to get very interesting here. Marvel Comics presents the Captain America Super Art Giveaway Contest. Want a chance to win some original art? Sure you do. Well, how about winning the original art for an entire Marvel comic? No, better yet. Yet, how's about winning all of Rob Liefeld's original artwork for Captain America number four? What you need to play. Just a pen. See, all you gotta do is fill out that official entry form below, slap it on an envelope, moisten a stamp, pop it on there, and mail it off to us. One winner, chosen completely at random, walks off with the top prize. Grand prize, one lucky reader will receive all of the original artwork, including the cover for Captain America number four. Sheesh! What more could you want? Second prize, another reader will receive a set of Rob Liefeld sketch layout pages that went into the making of Captain America number four. Third prize, 20 readers will each receive a copy of Heroes Reborn Half, autographed by cap artist and writer Rob Liefeld and Jeff Loeb. This contest is sponsored by Marvel Comics Patriotic to the bitter end. Wow, so this feels like a slap in the face to Rob Liefeld, right? Like this is them saying, we kicked him off the book because he didn't want to play the game and get paid less and we're getting him out of here. We're getting rid of his art. We are liquidating everything to do with Rob Liefeld. And obviously Wizard's like, we're not even gonna to make this fun just if you win you win you get it sent your way we did a similar thing after our incident with rob liefeld back in the day where we had bought all these comics because we were trying to like give him the benefit of the doubt maybe he's not as bad as everybody said as wizard always gave him a hard time for so we had all these like extreme studios comics and then when he uh said what he said about us and blocked us we sold them all off for like five bucks to this guy online. I, we just said, whoever wants it, first come, first serve. And somebody got like a whole mess of Rob Liefeld comics. So <laughs> yeah, this feels very similar in that vein. Let's see if they have any jokes here. American Legal Matters. 
Contests open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Marvel Comics, and their immediate families, or Red Skull fascist wannabes. Wow, so this is a Marvel contest, but it actually has jokes. They don't usually do that. All right, let's check out here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. The only good thing about bringing back Bucky is that we get to watch him, er, her, die again. Ooh. All right, next contest. Oh, we definitely talked about this in the issue. Tops Comics and Media Asia present Jackie Chan's Spartan X Extravaganza. Listen up, Chan fans. He conquered the Asian film industry years ago. He's been overpowering the American silver screen for the last few. Now everybody's favorite martial artist Jackie Chan is taking the comic world by storm with Tops Comics' Jackie Chan's Spartan X. To celebrate the occasion, Jackie Tops and the folks here from Media Asia want to give you some free stuff. How to get the goodies. It's as easy as a dropkick. Just fill out this little coupon below and mail it in. Winners will be selected randomly. Grand prize. One lucky reader will receive a Jackie Chan wristwatch plus a signed collection of Jackie Chan's Spartan X comic book. First prize. Four readers will receive a Jackie Chan t-shirt plus signed copies of Jackie Chan's Spartan X comic book. Second prize. Ten readers will receive a Jackie Chan polarized watch. Third prize. Ten readers will receive Jackie Chan coffee mugs. What in the world? I didn't know Jackie Chan had all of this merch. <laughs> I mean, like, because it's not necessarily Spartan X, I'm guessing. It's, like, literally Jackie Chan. That's kind of funny. Okay. And then it says, This contest is sponsored by Topps Comics and Media Asia. No joke. But let's see what it says here under the legal stunts. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Topps Comics, Media Asia, their immediate families, or Bruce Leroy from The Last Dragon. Oh, breaking the heart of my friend Jeff, a.k.a. at nlogan77 on Twitter. He uh, loves The Last Dragon. He's actually met the actor who played Bruce Leroy and uh, showed me the film, borrowed it from him. So yeah, he is a, a super fan. All right, next one here. Prizes are awarded. The names of the contest winners are non-transferable. Speaking of The Last Dragon, whatever happened to El DeBarge? Was he beaten to the rhythm of the night? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that was a very musically focused film. All right, uh, now the other thing here, this is interesting because in the front of wizard they always list all the contests and they give the page numbers if that's the only reason you bought the magazine but this one is not listed this is win a free trip to wizard chicago comic-con 1997 july 4th through 6th at the rosemont convention center here's your once in a lifetime chance to spend july 4th weekend with all the geeks at wizard along with such awesome guests as frank miller jim lee brian polito alex ross mark wade and many more plus you'll meet the grand fromage himself garib Sheamus. prizes well the grand prize one lucky randomly drawn entry will get free round trip airfare from anywhere in the continental United States to Chicago VIP admission to the con two nights hotel accommodations and a hundred dollars shopping spree from our buddies at Chicago Comics Graham Crackers Comics Iguanas Comics Book Cafe and Psycho Candy <laughs> check them out at the con and there's no jokes in the legal text you think they just take a few more swipes at Garib but as we close out this section there is one more follow-up to a wizard contest. Wizard scavenger hunt winner announced. The hunt paid off for Ron Kamrowski of Florida, New York. Ron was the grand prize winner of the 1996 wizard scavenger hunt, walking off with 20 comic art originals as his prize. I went to garage sales, comic shows, everywhere to get some of the items, said Kamrowski. Most items were easy, but that Viewmaster disc took a while. Really? Because I have a ton of Viewmaster discs at my house. Uh, Kamrowski completed a 70 item scavenger hunt and correctly answered five trivia questions to get a perfect 
perfect score, qualifying him to win. One random drawing among all perfect scores, and ta-da, Kamrowski was the winner. The grand prize included works from Joe Matarera, who drew Spider-Man, Stephen Hughes, Jason Jensen, Lady Death, Jim Ballant, Catwoman, and Joseph Michael Linsner, Dawn. So which was Kamrowski's favorite? I love the colors in the Lady Death piece, but just for the grace of it, I think I like the Catwoman the best. And yes, it is, he's actually holding it up in his photo, and he is every bit the comic book reader that you would imagine. You know, he's kind of a skinny guy with glasses, and he's got his Catwoman sketch from Jim Ballant, so big congratulations. Where are you now, Mr. Kamrowski? If you're listening to the podcast, we'd love to hear where all those art pieces ended up. Are they still hanging up in your house to this day? But that's it for all the contests this time around. Let's get into our next segment. Okay, so here we are with a very interesting casting call from Wizard Issue 70. You know, they had already cast an X-Men movie many issues before. They decided they needed to get into the Age of Apocalypse. And, you know, we were lucky enough to have Greg Orlando on this episode. And I said, hey, if we're going to talk casting calls, why not bring in another Wizard staffer? Hey, how about the former Wizard staff writer. Yes, indeed, it's Ben Morris. Welcome back, Ben. Good to be back, Adam. Always nice to be gracing the uh, the Wizard Cave, as it were. I've been listening for the past few months, uh, slowly making my way up to the present, which would be the past, which is the future. I don't know. My point is I am catching up on old episodes, and I love listening to you guys. I always appreciate any chance to come on. Well, excellent. Yeah, uh, very fitting, all the confusion about times and where all the comments oh, yeah. fit in. I plan- yeah, I planned that. <laughs> so uh, this is really interesting because, yeah, like I said, they had already cast an X-Men movie. So this time they had to come up with all new pitches, you would think, for who they wanted to play these. I don't know what Age of Apocalypse, it's like Apocalypse is ruling. So I guess technically it is post-apocalyptic. Uh, yeah. The world is in. It in is. It, it's. Yeah. Uh, would it be called apocalyptic? Yeah, because ongoing era. Yeah. (laughs) Ongoing apocalypse. (laughs) So uh, we got to put ourselves in that mindset, I guess, as, you know, a very popular genre of film in the 80s, especially. And then Mm -hmm. in the 90s kind of started waning a little bit. But I think we're going to find some interesting choices here. Now, first up, for the Age of Apocalypse version of Wolverine, who is Weapon X, you know, the one-armed or one-handed, I should say, Wolverine, they wanted, straight from Cape Fear, Robert De Niro. Off to a bad start in my mind. Uh, <laughs> I, I looked at this over the weekend and I was just like, I think in, what was this, 1996 or 1997? 97, yeah. At 97, De Niro is already way too old to be playing Wolverine. And more than that, I mean, look, all the respect in the world for Robert De Niro. Love him in Goodfellas. Love him in uh, Godfather Part Two, But... Yeah, he just doesn't seem ferocious enough to me. And I, I know they're casting him based on Cape Fear, which I haven't seen. But I mean, this is like the most feral, violent version of Wolverine. I want someone who's genuinely intimidating, not the guy who's going to go on to play, you know, the dad in uh, Meet the Parents. 
<laughs> well, and the crazy thing is, way back in issue number seven of Wizard, which was my first issue Ed, that I ever bought, they did, this is before Cast and Colleen existed. They're just like, okay. working on a script, our pick, Robert De Niro and Cape Fear. Like, they just hung on to that. I don't know if it was Pat. I don't know who was saying it has to be Robert De Niro. So this is literally years later, they're still clinging to Robert De Niro from Cape Fear. Has to be That smacks to me of... We said this five years ago, and by God, we're going to stick with it. Or, or yeah, when they used to pass those casting call clipboards around to us, I imagine this would just already be there. Just like, this is decided. Lock it yeah, in. We'll, we'll always come back to this. You know, it's just, a, you know, in a five-year cycle, we'll get to it. Um, so as far as alternate casting, though, for this, mm. and I don't know where you follow this because you say you want this ferocious kind of jaded Wolverine. They, I'm, I'm going to kind of jump ahead because for Cyclops, they say they want Kurt Russell basically right. looking like Snake Plissken. Mm -hmm. I see what they're saying, but I think Kurt Russell could make a very interesting Wolverine. I agree. I, yeah. So that would be my pick. I, I I wouldn't switch them, but I would put Kurt Russell in the Weapon X section. So. Uh, yeah, I, I can see an argument for both. Kurt Russell, just in terms of the character, like Snake Plissken, is much closer to Wolverine. I can see, and I know this is how Brian Cunningham... Has said they always do these. He looks like Age of Apocalypse Cyclops, which I know there was always more important for them to get it looking correct than necessarily getting the character right. I personally would rather have someone who can really, you know, act the part. So I'm with you. I support. Uh, I support Kurt Russell for for Weapon X. Let's do it. Okay. Now the next one here is the leader of the X-Men in this continuity, which is Magneto. And they want, again, this 100% because he had just appeared in a movie with a long white-haired wig. Yep, yep. Christopher Lambert. I don't hate Christopher Lambert as Magneto. I, he's a good actor and, you know, he was in Highlander and has some gravitas to bring to it. Wasn't he also Raiden in Mortal Kombat? Yeah, so, so that's 90s? what they're basing this choice on. And I okay. see it. I mean, Christopher Lambert, he could play kind of tortured. Obviously, in Highlander, he had a little bit of that. Uh, but I, for me, I was thinking someone a little bit more noble and also a little bit more, Christopher Lambert is a handsome dude, but I was thinking like Richard Gere, for some reason, Ooh. came to me for Magneto because we think of him with, you know, the lighter colored hair just in general. And I was just thinking, he let him grow it out. I don't know. What do you think? I think he could definitely win Rogue's heart, which is the big uh, thing that Magneto needs to do in Age of Apocalypse. He needs to be attractive enough that we buy that Rogue will leave uh, Gambit for him. So, yeah, sure. Why not? Now, speaking of Rogue, who did they choose for the mutant Southern Belle was Courtney Cox. from Yes. Mm. And I looked at that and I said, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I don't see it at all on any level. Popular actress who's attractive in 1997. It doesn't seem like they were reaching very far. I don't think she could pull off Southern. I don't think she could pull off kind of the bombastic attitude of Rogue necessarily. Yeah, this, this I think you need a more serious actress for this. Who are you thinking? So I don't know if we consider more serious, but definitely more Southern. And I think if we're casting Richard Gere fits nicely as a compliment to him. And that would be Andy McDowell. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy McDowell could work here for she sure. Really that, do that's, it. that's a good pairing. Andy McDowell and Richard Gere as Magneto and Rogue. I like their, uh, I could see their chemistry firing off very, very well. Absolutely. She's just like so effervescent. Like it would Absolutely. just through instantly. That's what She's you want. She's right around the right age for this too. Mm-hmm. 
Now, for Apocalypse, they wanted Brian Thompson. Yeah, who, I have no idea who this is. You, you never see. So he was in Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Oh, as uh, the one with the helmet. So yeah, that was the, right. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Look, Apocalypse. Would I want someone with a little bit more of a refined uh, ability to be regal and noble? Yeah, but at the end of the day, you're probably going to be burying him under so much CGI and makeup that you could probably... Is this one of those cases where you could get away with using this guy as as the body and just casting someone else to do the voice Darth Vader style? That was an idea I had. And the voice I was going to pitch... Keith David as yeah, Apocalypse. Perfect. Yeah. Next. <laughs> Keith David is always going to win when you cast him in anything for me. It's true. And I mean, with Apocalypse, just think of it now. We got that X-Men Apocalypse movie that was so terrible. Mm-hmm. What if they had just gone all the way to Age of Apocalypse and done that instead? I, I, I just feel like that's a missed opportunity. Love Keith David. Uh, I think he would be perfect for Apocalypse. Keep the other guy for... Well, you know what? Don't even worry about... I, are we doing this in 97 or are we doing this in 2023? This is 97, so we're trying to stick with Do we that. have the technology to create a good ILM apocalypse? I was listening to an episode you guys did recently, and um, something I remember from being a wizard reader is where they say, like, for this, we need industrial light and magic. That was always like a go-to crutch. Yeah. And I found myself, whenever I did casting calls with, like, my friends, I always leaned on that, just the, <laughs> the ILM, the ILM uh, approach. So I definitely, I definitely got that from Wizard, yeah. Yeah. Now, for X-Man, Nate Gray, they want Barry Watson from 7th yes. Heaven. Yeah, so I am a, uh, I, I didn't watch 7th Heaven, but I am a devoted CW uh, soap opera kind of guy. I love Melrose Place when I was a kid. Yes, a kid. Uh, I loved comic books, pro wrestling, and Melrose Place. Uh, <laughs> that's, it, was, it was a great combination. I used to watch Melrose Place with my mom. But I wasn't super familiar with Seven Heaven, but I know I've seen Barry Watson and other stuff. And Nate Gray, to me, well, number one, I mean, Nate Gray's annoying. I don't, I don't love him anyways. Uh, my big, my biggest thing with Nate Gray is that I remember when they did X Men, Ejectiveless X Men number two hundred, uh, the Mike Carey written version. They sent over to Wizard. I was at Wizard. They sent over a sketch of the cover which was supposed to have everyone who'd ever been on the X-Men ever. And I think this was one of the interns. And I noticed that Nate Gray was not on there. <laughs> and Jim McCann, who was the marketing guy at the time, we, we, he asked us what we thought of the piece. And we said, well, Nate Gray's missing. And he's like, Nate Gray was never in the X-Men. And we're like, Nate Gray was absolutely in the X-Men. His name is X-Man. Um, <laughs> so we're like, we had a big argument. I remember Jim, who was, who was a dear friend, he was at my wedding. Um, we got a huge fight with him over Nate Gray, uh, which was hilarious. And this was in like 2007. Um, so that's what I think of most when I think of Nate Gray. Could Barry Watson play him? Sure, why not? Yeah, like you said, if, if you don't have an emotional investment in the character, you're like, put whoever in there. Because of the classic floppy hair of Nate floppy Gray hair, in the yeah. 90s, mm-hmm. I just go to the show that had two floppy haired guys who defined the look. We had Boy Meets World with Ryder Strong or Will Friedle. Mm. So Ooh, who, I would go. I would go with Ryder Strong. Ryder Strong as Nate Gray is a is a great choice. Yeah, I think he'd nail it. Now the big one that everybody would want to get their pick in for, right, is Gambit. Who should play Gambit? Gambit. 
we know who we got. Ah. <laughs> um, I mean, that was the movie's fault, though, because that was Taylor Kitsch, right? From Friday Night Lights. Yeah. He's awesome in Friday Night Lights. Um, not so much in any movie he's ever done. John Carter, no. Yeah, yeah. but great, great on Friday Night Lights. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> so here, you, you know, uh, your future co-workers had chosen Dermot Mulroney, who great was awesome. Choice. Yeah, great, great actor. Does not scream Gambit to be in the least. Who would you have? Who would you have as Gambit around this so, time? This is kind of, I mean, it's a cheesy choice in retrospect, but at the time, very popular syndicated series. And maybe he just has to have a little bit of charm and a wink. I was thinking Lorenzo Lamas. Lorenzo Lamas. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't think of a better choice. So I will go with you on Lorenzo Lamas, definitely over Dermot Mulrooney. Dermot Mulrooney to me is like the nice guy, kind of like best friend type. He's he doesn't have that that edge. Um, I would also say the guy who played Logan on Baywatch would be a good choice, but he's Australian, not oh. Cajun, and I don't know his name. So so, so it wasn't David Chokichi who they picked. I would go with David Chokichi too. I love <laughs> David Chokichi. He was on Melrose Place. No, David Chokichi was on Witchblade. Never mind. David Charvet was on Melrose Place. I didn't know that. Chokachai? Yeah. He was in he was in the Witchblade TV show. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, he was the love interest. All right. Uh next one here. We we talked about Cyclops and we took Kurt Russell out of Kurt the Kurt Russell's out. So who do we put in? Exactly. Mm. Uh did you have a thought? Was there anybody that came to mind for you? You're like, this guy speaks to me as a little bit more grizzled, Scott Trying Sun. to trying to cast myself back to 1997. You gotta remember that this is a Cyclops with a little bit more moral ambiguity than normal Marvel Universe Cyclops. He's, you know, sinister son being manipulated a little bit. Who could play that version of Cyclops? Have you be someone young enough, too? Man. I mean, I was leaning at this time towards somebody like a Brad Pitt. Sure. Because he's so, you know, now we think, oh, he's Brad Pitt. But at this but time, then he's, he's like, let's. Legends of the Fall, yes, Selma type yeah. Brad Pitt. Yeah, Brad Pitt could pull it off. Is um, this is a horrible question. Is is River Phoenix already dead at this point? Unfortunately, yes. I looked okay. him up too. Yeah, okay. no, yeah, that would be. I would love to. I would love to put River Phoenix in there. But ooh, you know who else? Um, speaking of people who today, I don't know if he'd pull. You know what? Even today, he might pull it off. Keanu Reeves. He actually crossed my mind. That was like yeah, Keanu know, Reeves is Cyclops. I don't hate that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's young enough to do it back in 97. He didn't have to have too much gravitas or personality. It's just exactly. Be, <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Now, uh, for Jean Grey, uh, they wanted Carrie Lowell from Law and Order. I wasn't watching Law and Order in the 90s. Nor I, my friend, nor I. I have no idea who this woman is. But if you need a short-haired kind of redhead to me, mm-hmm. I immediately went to Bridget Fonda. Excellent choice. Bridget Fonda would be great as Jean Grey. That's an awesome choice. But for Bishop, they mm. wanted Ving Rhames. And how do you argue with that? It's a, There's really no argument against Ving Rhames. I would say, I don't know how old or accomplished Terry Crews was at this point. <laughs> Terry Crews would also be a lot of fun, but I don't know what he was doing in 1997. Ving Rhames, of course, famously in the uh, failed Aquaman pilot, uh, Mercy Reef, um, that we watched at the Wizard Offices, starring Justin Hartley, who would go on to be Green Arrow on Smallville. And then we also literally the, just talked about that this yeah, last episode. Yeah. That was, yeah. The, we, for years afterwards, 
when we would see each other, like wizard guys who would see the mercenary reef pilot, we just go, Orin, because that's what <laughs> Ving Rhames said in uh, Mercy Reef. That was a, a mortal line in the wizard opposite. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right. Uh, now for Mr. Sinister, this was an interesting choice, but one I thought could fit very well because they wanted Jimmy Smits from NYPD yeah. at this point, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm on the fence on this one. I think when I think of Jimmy Smits, I don't think of NYPD Blue. I think of he was great on Sons of Anarchy, which I really enjoyed. Um, but he was playing a very like he had a heavy accent and very different. Great actor. Well, see, because I, I just saw him for the first time in Running Scared, where he's okay. like the drug dealer bad guy in that. Also a heavy accent. But yeah. I feel like when you need somebody that ha- can play a little bit regal, like mm-hmm. Sinister. I do think of his roles in the Star Wars films. Oh, yeah. An evil version of Bail Organa, you know. That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we why don't we leave them this one? I feel like we didn't leave them a whole lot of choices. So yeah, yeah we can they can stick with uh Jimmy Smith. Okay. This next one though, this is wild. For Havoc, they wanted Stephen Baldwin. I saw this. <laughs> I don't hate this simply because Stephen Baldwin's whole identity is being an overlooked annoying younger brother and that's all you really need for havoc in age of apocalypse so yeah although i will say this you know it could be fun is if um if we go with keanu reeves as cyclops what about going with alex winter as Havoc? that would be amazing that'd be kind of great stunt casting right there <laughs> bill and ted reunited in the age as of the summer's as the summer's brothers all I had, I was like, maybe Heath Ledger, maybe Matthew McConaughey, but probably not. So I'm, I'm just going to go with that. Alex Winter. Okay, Alex so. Winter. Yep, there you go. Printed. Now, rounding out the cast here, this was, again, an up-and-coming actor who didn't yet have a real established... I mean, he was, this is he was just breaking out at this time. For Quicksilver, they wanted Russell Crowe. It's hard to picture him without picturing, like, 2023 yeah. Russell Crowe. Like... What was he like in 97? Well, he also, we got to keep him speedster to me. Just when you look at him, he doesn't. Yeah, look he's, he's, he's bulky. He's bulky. Yeah. You know what? He'd actually, maybe he might be too young at this point, but I would, he could be a cool Wolverine. Yeah. Russell Crowe. But as far as Quicksilver, I mean, keep in mind, it's got to be someone who can play Richard Gere's son. Um, he has to be convincingly young enough that he's, that he's the son of Richard Gere. Yeah, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. It would have to be someone from like a teen show. Or like, because I was thinking like another movie that came out this year was Gattaca. And I was like, what about Jude Law as Quicksilver? Jude Law would be great as Quicksilver. He looks the part. He looks the part. He's got, he's even got the hair. Like he can do that crazy, yeah, (laughs) V hair. (laughs) He's very, he's very narrow. I think. All right. This is a much better movie. I think, I think we've improved it. Greatly. Good job, Adam. <laughs> Brian, you know, Dan, we're sorry. You Look, I love those guys. They were formative in my career, but casting call were some of the worst articles they ever did because <laughs> they always just looked for a picture that lined up. They're still doing it. When I got there, they need to refine their search methods. There we go. Well, again, Ben, thank you so much for joining for this, uh, always joining a pleasure. For this segment. Very fun. So we will talk to you in the future for sure. Definitely. Uh, I look forward to coming back. Well, I think it's time to check out our top 10 heroes and villains. Here goes my hero, 
I gotta say, even though the rankings don't change that much, we're not getting a lot of new characters in this era. The uh, punchiness, I guess you would say, of the wizard staffer who had to write these things is really uh, <laughs> making for some good comedy. So let's check out here. In the number one spot, we have Wolverine. Ah! Run for your life! It's a vampire! Actually, it's not a vampire. It's Wolverine. And this is only a test of that Wolverine crappy continuity emergency service. If Wolverine were an actual vampire, you would have been instructed to burn all your X-Men and report immediately to the Age of Apocalypse, where things make more sense. Even though Wolvie's had the adamantium yanked out of his bones, been given weird-looking fangs, and apparently lost his styling moose, he remains a number one from coast to coast. Makes you wonder how popular he'd be if he were portrayed in a more traditional Wolvie manner. Sticking with the W's, at number two, we have Witchblade. Sarah Pizzini is a cop by day. That's okay. Lots of cops take second jobs at night. That's okay, too. Most cops' second jobs are as security guards, private investigators, bodyguards, things like that. But Sarah has a rather weird second job. She's the bearer of the Witchblade, an ancient mystical gauntlet that, in the immortal California words of former Top Cow comic spokesperson, like, totally combats evil. So, Sarah fights evil by day, fights evil by night, and wears skimpy, skin-tight red dress whenever possible. That keeps her pretty busy. We hope she at least gets a good dental plan out of all this work. Alright, number three is Spider-Man. Yow! That's one sour-looking Spidey. He looks like someone just put peanut butter in his chocolate and he's ready to whip some ass! Actually, Spider-Man would be smiling these days. After all, he's just found out that he's always been the real Peter Parker, the one and only Spider-Man, all the time. His Saturday morning cartoon is pretty darn popular. He's married to a likey supermodel. He gets to be drawn by the likes of John Romita Jr. on a monthly basis. Mine. Your mileage may vary. Uh, put it all together and that's not a bad life for a superhero. Heck, it beats with that Spider-Man. Spawn guys got. Oh, here we are. Wouldn't you know? In number four, it is Spawn. Now here's the guy who's got it tough. He's been assassinated, went to hell, been resurrected as a hell spawn, lives in an alley with a bunch of skid row bums, and has a cybernetic gorilla looking to separate his head from his body. And speaking of heads, ugh, as if it weren't bad enough that Spawn is raw meat for a cabeza, he now got bugs in his mouth? Gross. But it's because of all this that Spawn is the ultimate underdog, and thus a rather sympathetic character, and that's why Spawn is pretty darn popular. Alright, number five is Rogue. The thing we like about Rogue? Accessories. She's one chick who stays up to date in fashion. She probably subscribes to both Cosmopolitan and Vogue. She's sporting that nifty headband, a style and belt, even though she usually wears a one-piece bodysuit and has no need for a belt. It always has a great hairdo. Heck, if it weren't for the fact that her mutant powers knock you unconscious if you touch her, we'd ask her out on a date sometime. Alright, number six is Dark Claw. He's got a utility belt and metal claws? He's a savage ass whipping warrior and a great detective? He's a dessert topping and a floor wax. <laughs> He's Dark Claw, and hot damn it, everyone loves him. His second amalgam appearance has kept him front and center in the minds of geeks everywhere. If fans are demanding more Dark Claw, heck, they'd like to see Dark Claw comics, Dark Claw toys, Dark Claw Pez dispensers, Dark Claw spinball pinball. Sadly, we got none of those things. Dark Claw is lost to the ages. Uh, come on, amalgam. We're begging for it. Bring it back, Marvel and DC. Alright, number seven is Batman. Man, them's some ears. You ever notice that the size of Batman's ears change faster than the weather? Why is that? Are his ears actually radio antennas that go up when he's trying to tune in the ball game? Are they little turkey meat thermometers that pop out to tell you that Batman's braid has been cooked to a succulent juicy golden brown? That's what we want to know. Forget the mystery of who is Holiday. Somebody explain those darn expando ears to us already. <laughs> 
Number eight is Fairchild. Oh, she's kind of dropping down here. Formula for a successful comic book character. Volume 312. Draw red-haired hubba, green-eyed hubba hubba, chick with legs up to her neck. Give her a micro nose and those pouty lips. Then actually give her some smarts and make her a take-charge kind of gal so all those slobbering 14-year-olds with an early pubescent fear of girls can relax as this little object of their desires tells them what to do. Now name her Fairchild, you're done. I feel like Wizard already got in trouble for saying how you make a successful comic book that basically amounted to this. They're just going after it again. They're like, okay, Gen 13 doesn't have much going for it. I understand, but. All right, number nine is Preacher. Jesse Custer, the Preacher, looks pretty scared in this shot, but he's got no reason to be frightened. See, he's got this thing on his side called the word. He says something to someone, and if the person he's talking to hears and understands him, he's compelled to do it. Jesse says, jump, someone jumps. Jesse says, give me your pants. Jesse gets a new pair of Levi's. We could have a lot of fun if we had the word. We're thinking free Taco Bell forever. I don't know if you guys remember that old uh, Levi's jean commercial and there's this guy who like takes off his pants and then he drives away in this car and they're like, in Prague, you can trade them for a car. <laughs> it's the weirdest commercial back in the day. All right, number 10 and last on the list is Lady Death. Product endorsements. That's what Chaos Comics is missing with Lady Death. She could be the pasty spokesmodel for Prell Shampoo. Look at that wavy bounce. Visine for clear eyes. And the Cross Your Heart Bra for lift and separate support. Heck, the ladies of marketing goldmine waiting to happen. She hasn't clicked on Madison Avenue yet, but her comics sure have clicked with man's, as have her statues, posters, and even drink coasters. Hey, maybe she's a goldmine already. So that does it for our top 10 heroes and villains of the month, but we ain't done because we have to check out our Mort of the month. This one here is Ape X. It's half monkey, half Sherman tank. No, it's not the hottest toy since Tickle Me Elmo. It's Ape X. This three foot four instrument of furry justice was a mild mannered banana scarf and ape when her trainer used her in an intelligence increasing experiment. But when her trainer was killed, Ape X quite naturally turned to crime. Seeing the advantage of having a smart monkey on tank treads as part of its team, the Squadron Supreme, the Kmart Blue Light special version of the Avengers, modified her behavior and now she's a member in good standing. Mort City, meet the monkey. Oh, I don't know. I always thought that was kind of an interesting, like, it had levels to it. Because Squadron Supreme is one of my favorite Marvel miniseries. Maxi series, I guess, around 12 issues. But it's one of those uh, things that I read and reread all the time. I have all the individual issues. I have some trades. Like, I just really enjoyed that universe that they created. You know, Marvel's version of DC. But Ape X, that was just kind of a fascinating thing. It's just like, wow, there's a lot going on here. Plus the fact that you just put a gorilla on top of a tank. That's it's just funny. <laughs> well, hey, let's get on to our next segment. All right, it's time to hear about what Wizard thought of the current crop of comics in The Skinny. All 
right, first one up here is the Uncanny X-Men. Everybody online is telling us we love Joe Mad. I was only reading the book for Joe Mad. I loved it. I loved it. But a couple people recently told us about this era is where they jumped off with the Operation Zero Tolerance storyline. So let's see what Wizard was thinking. They, they're saying issues 337 through 344 with the team of Scott Lobdell, Joe Madarera, and Tim Townsend is what specifically is being reviewed here. What you need to know. Feared and hated by the world they're swore to protect, the X-Men learn to hone their mutant superpowers under the tutelage of telepath Professor Charles Xavier. The team consists of Cyclops, Phoenix, Wolverine, Rogue, Angel, Beast, Iceman, Storm, Bishop, Psylocke, Gambit, Cannonball, and Joseph, and Amnesiac Magneto. The good. The art style is dynamic and action-packed. It successfully mixes up the panel arrangement, including plenty of background details, and keeps things moving. The splash pages always suck you right into the story. And like the many distinguished X-Styles preceding this one, established by John Byrne and Jim Lee, to name a few, Uncanny's art is already spawning a new trend among today's artists. This title relies mostly on the strength of its great characters. Each of the X-Men has his or her own personality, and the interaction among the members gives the book good family feel. A strong sense of humor between the characters also adds to the enjoyment. The bad. If you haven't been following this title consistently, you will have a hard time getting back into the swing of things. Issue 337 deals with the repercussions of Onslaught, and yet nowhere does it state exactly what happened, nor does it outright mention the Professor X was Onslaught. In issues 341 to 344, the long-standing relationship between the Shi'ar and the X-Men is never explained, and the story loses its sense of purpose because of it. And not explaining or resolving things is common. For example, Pyro's odd appearance disappearance in issue number 338, Phoenix's powers going screwy in issue 339, Angel's wings mysteriously returning in issue 338, and the emergence of Psylocke's new phasing powers are all conveniently not developed. While there are some good ideas at the heart of this book, some plot points are contrived. The phalanx are handled almost identically to the Borg in Star Trek First Contact. The X-Men even beat the phalanx with a convenient virus, much like the resolution of the movie Independence Day. The Buzz. The Uncanny X-Men is consistently the industry's number one best-selling book. The summer Zero Tolerance X crossover will only feed the frenzy. The Skinny. At the heart of this book is a fun family feeling with a great characters, stunning art, and an affable sense of humor, though the series pokes fun of its own convoluted nature. It should try harder to resolve plot lines. There's too many dangling subplots without sufficient development, and you can never really enjoy these characters and their stories as much as you'd like. The Verdict. A three! A three for Uncanny X-Men. Not that it needed any great reviews, right? It's the number one selling book. Alright, next here at the end of the alphabet is Witchblade. Says, looks aren't everything. Hmm, I wonder what that means. What you need to know, Sarah Pazidi's a tough cop with a strange weapon, the Witchblade, an ancient powerful gauntlet that selects a worthy female wielder every generation. The good. At the heart of the book is a great concept. It modernizes the legend of King Arthur's sword Excalibur, but twists it by adding a curse. The Witchblade gauntlet is pure evil connected to a person who is intrinsically good, which sets up a potentially interesting conflict. The most striking thing about this series is the gorgeous coloring. The colorist's use of vibrant oranges, yellows, and blues really gives Witchblade a sultry mood and make this book stand out. Complementing these colors is the art. With Mark Silvestri-esque line work, the artist is slowly developing his own style and adding a wealth of detail to his backgrounds, an element that's painfully lacking in a number of today's comics. So they don't mention Michael Turner by name, he was still just the artist on Witchblade. The book has an elegant visual style about it. There are red roses and posh furniture seemingly in every panel. The bad. The numerous TNA shots are rather gratuitous. Unfortunately, they are almost necessary to keep a reader's interest because 
The stories move so slowly. Sluggish pacing and excessive wordy dialogue and caption text weigh the book down immeasurably. Faster pacing and fewer words would pick up the slack. As for the characters themselves, most of them lack depth. So much time is spent on Sarah battling her inner demons that there's no time devoted to the rest of the cast character development. Her concerned partner Jake? We don't know enough about him to care. Also, as an aside, about 95% of the characters in the book are perfect supermodels. Where are all the fat people? That's what I said way back when when we were talking about it. <laughs> there are some technical problems too. Sometimes the panel structure is unclear as you're not exactly sure what order you should be reading them in. The random sideways double page spreads are as annoying as they are unnecessary. New readers will have a tough time jumping on board this title because there aren't any recaps explaining just what the Witchblade is. It doesn't help either that the first pages of most issues are so laden with text, newcomers to the book might get bogged down trying to struggle past the wordiness. This book is all buzz and fans dig it. Witchblade is consistently high on all the sales charts and a title's connection to the new Garth Ennis Mark Silvestri vehicle The Darkness will likely keep it there. The Skinny. A good concept is lost amid too much dialogue, gratuitous TNA, and bland characters. The Witchblade crew should take a cue from DC's Catwoman and Supergirl to see how to make a strong female character and an entertaining supporting cast. The verdict to Witchblade is a two. Wow, Witchblade got a two. Again, you know, it's popular. They can't deny it like they said, but it's nobody's favorite over at Wizard. All right, next one here, though, I think we're gonna have a change of paces. Astro City, a great place to visit. What you need to know. Astro City is a thriving Midwestern metropolis chock full of superheroes, supervillains, vampires, and mystical beings. The book's stories are usually told from the perspective of one of its denizens, whether it be hero, villain, or normal folk. The good. Astro City's stories are friggin' awesome because they take typical concepts and make them into interesting concepts. Issues 2 through 3 are told from the perspective of a 10-year-old girl who's part of a family super team. The story puts her in search of a normal life her fantastic family life hadn't allowed her. Another story, 4 to 5, sees the initiation of a superhero sidekick wannabe going from busboy to superhero. But being a sidekick to a mysterious vigilante isn't all it's cracked up to be. These are very smart and entertaining stories. The dialogue and characterization are so on target, you can't help but love these characters. Although the superheroes in the book have flashy costumes and incredible powers, they're portrayed realistically, and the stories always center on the human side of being a hero in Astro City. The art also does a good job of moving you through the story, beautifully complementing the scripts, with neither part overshadowing or slowing down the other. Now let's not forget the lettering. Something you normally only notice if it's really poor. Here, however, it fits perfectly, making the stories easy to read. If you're a newcomer, the title does a wonderful job of filling you in on what's happened before, as well as giving a rundown as to who all the major characters are. And last, but certainly not least, every issue comes wrapped with a sharp painted cover by Alex Ross. The Bad. The only thing we can think of is there's a lot of intentional nostalgia in this book, and some readers might not be able to absorb the full experience of Astro City. Okay, so this this has a typo in it, so you failed here. I don't know if you're handling this, Greg, but this should have been you. They are, but it's supposed to be, there are specific comic book references like Mount Kirby, named after the late great artist Jack Kirby, and characters like the First Family and their foes have a fantastic four-like feel. In fact, most of the characters are inspired by others. Some are just more obvious about it. The buzz. It took a while, but fans are finally visiting Astro City more regularly, as evidenced by its rapid ascent into the top 50 on the bestseller charts. It's about time. The skin great art, great stories, great dialogue, great covers, great characters. Everything about this series tells us Astro City is currently the best superhero comic book being published today. Period. The verdict? A six. It got a perfect score. That's a 
amazing. I, I don't think any other book has gotten that yet as far as they've done the skinny. Astro City is fully deserving of all that praise too. I mean, I know a lot of you out there have read it. I just started reading it recently and it just pulls you in. Like, especially like, you know, the four or five issue arcs and you just don't want to put it down. You want to see what the next step of it all is. So Kurt Busiek does a fantastic job there. All right, our last one here though is Azrael, which I can't believe this book was still being published at this point. We're so many years out from, you know, Nightfall. I mean, was Azrael actually popular? Awkward elements make Azrael less real. What you need to know. Given post-hypnotic mind conditioning, Jean-Paul Valley becomes Azrael, the super assassin of the secret society known as the Order of Saint Dumas. As Azrael, Valley transforms into a merciless killer who loses his own personality. Early in his career, Valley briefly became Batman, subbing for Bruce Wayne, who was recovering from a broken spine. Recently, he and three allies destroyed the Order itself. The good. There are a lot of great concepts behind this book. First, Jean-Paul only has access to Azrael's super strength, speed, and training when he dons the mask and costume. Second, he also gains a separate Azrael personality and loses his own, a major dilemma for Jean-Paul who lacks control of his own actions. This gives an added dimension to the character and creates an air of intrigue. Another interesting aspect of the series is the Order of Saint Dumas, which gives the book an interesting backdrop. Even though it's destroyed as of issue 26, she can expect more stories about it from time to time. The clean art style and layouts make for fast fast-paced storytelling. There's fine detail given to the Azrael costume, which is one of the more interesting costumes out there. So it looks like the artist at this time was Barry Kitson, just to mention that. The bad. For new readers, there are no character story recaps to introduce each issue. Uh, Wizard, it seems like nobody was doing that. Let's just drop it. <laughs> like every single review, they don't do recaps. They don't do recaps. Get over it. All right, questions abound. Why does Azrael keep going to the Batcave? How did he get his powers? What is the order all about? If you aren't up to date, you're on your own. Many of the characters' personalities aren't fleshed out. The dialogue rarely gives you a feel for the character who's saying it and comes across as stiff or too scholarly. For your average free-spirited, stress-laden college student, Jean-Paul himself is usually unemotional and bland. When the book deals with a character whose personality is fleshed out, the character's personality comes off rather badly, as is clearly evident when Batman makes guest appearances. It seems very out of character for the Dark Knight to let Azrael go on missions that are sure to fail or allow him to break an inmate out of the Arkham Asylum. Azrael's missions often change directions so haphazardly you're given whiplash. Issues 24 to 26 show Azrael and friends planning to kill the insane leader of the Order, but two-thirds of the way into the story they decide they have to save him instead. In addition, these quick-shifting plots are often contrived. Just when Azrael goes to Arkham in number 27, all the villains escape, and could be made more entertaining. The buzz? The recent Ash-Azrael crossover brought attention to this character, especially with original Azrael designer Joe Quesada drawing it. Starting with issue number 31, Roger Robinson will take over the art. The skinny? Azrael is a book with interesting concepts trying to break past its awkward stories and flat characters. Unfortunately, it's got a ways to go. The Verdict, a three. So again, just a middling book. Honestly, the Azrael character, I'm surprised he lasted in comics as long as he did, but he does seem perfect for a Batman movie. Like, in the, I don't know if, like, the Matt Reeves Batman feels like it would not do it, but it feels like it would work just fine. Like, people say, oh, the Manchurian Candidate, which is kind of what Azrael is, right? It's mind conditioning, he gets triggered, all that kind of stuff. It feels like they could work that easily into having Azrael be a rival to Batman. 
Batman. You know, obviously we're not going to do the whole storyline. His back gets broken and somebody takes over the mantle. You know, we got close to that in Dark Knight Rises, but obviously we didn't have the taking over the mantle until the end. Uh, so it, it's one of those things for me where I feel like Asriel's perfect to go into a movie uh, scenario. So, hey, Hollywood, if you're listening, get it done. All right, let's close this thing out. Big thanks to Ben Morse for joining us for that awesome discussion about the Age of Apocalypse movie. Hey, it could still get done. I feel like DC has done such a wonderful job adapting comic book stories into animation. Marvel needs to get on that a little bit more. Take your classic stories. You don't need to save them all for the movies. Give us an animated form. You're with Disney now, right? Come on! Of course, if you're looking to get more out of your Wizards experience, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics where you get a full scan of the issue. That's right, you can get into all the additional details we didn't have time for even on the mini episodes. You can get uncut video and audio versions of these episodes weeks in advance uh, in addition to just having fun conversations and sharing a little bit of extra details about what's to come. Also just pieces of the archives that we're bringing out here and there to share with you. I also want to mention uh, that we are going to be adding a new tier to Patreon where we are adding our 90s Super Cinema series so there will now be bonus episodes available if you want to spend $7 a month you get all the perks of our regular Patreon membership but then you also get an additional episode and actually some exclusive access to a Discord channel that is being put together. So if that's something you want to have kind of an ongoing forum to discuss 90s comics and your love of Wizard Magazine might want to consider being a patron now if the basics didn't get you maybe this will be something that takes you over the edge into the world of Wizards the Patreon guide to comics. Of course check us out on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics on Twitter at Wizards comics. You can get onto our Facebook group where we're having conversations there and I will tell you who is the special guest for episode 71. Well uh, you heard her on our Bad Girls special episode. It's none other than my wife Dr. Kristen. Yeah she is coming back. She is someone who knows nothing about comic books. She's maybe read some Archie but she has no frame of reference for anything we are going to be discussing. It is going to be a fantastic one-of-a-kind experience so (laughs) invite you to come back for episode 71. You won't want to miss her confusion and reactions to the world of late 90s comics so definitely something to keep an eye out for. In addition to we have a bonus episode on the horizon. We are going to be discussing the wizard spinoff magazine sci-fi invasion. You know they had success with inquest. They had success with toy fair. They tried it with sci-fi invasion. It only lasted four issues but we are getting together with the mastermind of that publication. Yes, the one and only Doug Goldstein, who went on to be a part of Robot Chicken and and do his own developing of animated series and things. So that's something else that you can keep an eye out for on the horizon. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.